Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, super excited to be joined today by Chad Salmala, who was recommended by Jackie Edmiston, one of my very favorite people. And so if you come highly recommended by Jackie, then you deserve a spot here in the podcast. I'm super excited to get to know you today, Chad. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I think I'm nine hours ahead of you. I'm in, are you in Salt Lake City? Is that where you are? I'm in Salt Lake City. Where are you? I'm in Uvascula, Finland. So we've been here, my family and I moved here, um, but we didn't plan on moving. We were coming for vacation. My wife is from here. And uh, we, we, with the COVID and all the news we were getting back home in July, we we bought tickets in January. They've been canceled, changed multiple times. Uh, and we finally just went to the airport and got on our flights and, and we made it. <laughs> so we're here. So, but we haven't gone home. So we're going to stay. We've, we were renting an apartment in downtown Uvescula, Finland. Um, my wife is looking for work and uh, I'm just continuing to do what I do from a distance. All right. There's a lot to unpack yeah, here, Chad. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So first of all, Finland, your wife is from Finland. Your home base is Finland then. You're not just there visiting? It is now. Yeah. For about two months. So we're, we, we, my wife and I met uh, almost 12 years ago now in, um, well, yeah, 12 years ago, October 1st, we met uh, in Duluth. She was a uh, former women's assistant hockey coach at the University of Minnesota Duluth and was working at the at the university there when I met her in a different capacity. And then, uh, and we just met kind of through, well, from, through my father. My father was is a fairly well-known architect in the U.S. and he was, he's Finnish American. So he was, happy to be the, um, the uh, honorary chair of FinFest 2008, which is a massive Finnish American festival. And it was being held in Duluth where there are you know, a lot of Finns in Northern Minnesota, Finnish Americans. And they met and he said, you got to meet my son. And uh, the rest is history. We were married four months, about four months after we met on October 1st. But my dad and her met probably two, three months prior. And uh, yeah, so uh, we, we got married pretty quickly. We have two kids. I have a, my son, Tavi, is 11 and in fifth grade here. And my daughter is nine. Her name is Ita and both Finnish names. And uh, so we, we've, we've lived a very Finnish-American life in Duluth. Um, but when the COVID-19, uh, when it started to look like they weren't going to have school in Duluth, uh, which is the case, they're meeting one day a week in Duluth right now. And Finland, things are pretty tame. Like, you know, they're on the rise. They're having a second second wave here. But by comparison to just about anywhere in the United States, that second wave is really, really quite small by comparison. Um, but, you know, Finns, like everybody, are still concerned. But um, that's kind of that was kind of like, you know, we talked about trying to do this and trying to have our kids go to school for a year in Finland and, and get their finish better and work on my finish. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to do that. It's hard to uproot your family and do that. And especially when you have jobs and people you care about, but uh, this was a, this was an opportunity where there weren't a lot of reasons to go back. Um, the, the only one really being is that I'm a, I am a uh, cross country running coach at the college of Saints class. And uh, we, you know, we were waiting to see what happened with my, my team's season and when they when the ncaa basically um advised no ncaa fall sports uh you know we are already 
seven eighths into <laughs> both of our feet in Finland. And that was kind of like the last straw. So we're, we're here. Um, we're here probably at least my my wife, and my kids are probably here until at least June when school gets out. Um, I am currently, uh, I'm currently here probably until April 1st when track and field is supposed to start up again, if we can get this COVID under control. So, you know, tentatively that, that's the plan. I'm, I'm planning to go back April 1st. Wow, this is totally fascinating. Totally fascinating. Now, you mentioned that uh, you and your children are trying to improve the Finnish mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, uh, on speaking the language. And I'm not an expert on languages by any means, but I, I understand that Finnish is a very, very difficult language. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Uh, when you So the, the prepositions are, uh, the, the tenses are just insane. <laughs> There's so many things, so, so many nuances to have to master in the language that you know, I was hopeful. I, I learned German in high school and I'm a fair, you know, I'm fluent, fairly fluent in German when I'm speaking or when I'm around German speakers for some not fluent now, but you know, I think if I were in Germany for six months, I'd be pretty, pretty, pretty good at it. But um Finnish is a is a horse of a different color. I mean, I'm taking classes, I'm I'm signed up to take classes starting in about a week and a half here at one of the schools that takes me through December. That I think will at least help to give me some some formalized sitting down and, and, and working with a teacher and, and figuring out some of the grammar. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not a total beginner, but my, you know, speaking is real. I understand a lot of what's going on. I'd say better than 50% in most conversations. I can figure out what we're talking about. I might not get the details and the nuance of this of the conversation, but to, to contribute in speaking at this point is impossible. I just, I don't have the confidence and I don't have the mastery of, of the language yet. So um, we'll, we'll see. A knock on wood. Hopefully I'll pick it up now that I'm taking some classes. What about the kids in school? I mean, are they going to a school which is Finnish speaking or do they go to an yeah. international school which is English speaking? How are they doing with the language? They're doing great. So one, I should back up a little bit. Uh, you know, ever since ever since they were little kids, we've you know, we haven't had nannies per se. We have we have um, kind of searched our friends network in Finland, my wife's friend network. And we have uh, they've all been all been all been. Uh, young women that, that have come over for, you know, 90 day tourist visas and stay with us and speak Finnish with the kids, pick them up from school when we're working. So, you know, kind of in a nanny role, but the, you know, the, the visas don't allow nannies and they don't allow payments. So they're basically doing it out of the goodness of their heart and, and for an experience to come to the United States. And, and both of our kids have been raised this way. Um, my, my son Tavi has, has always spoken some level of Finnish quite relatively well. I mean, he spoke pretty much Finnish entirely. His first two years, grandma came and lived with us before we started bringing in, um, you know, guests. And they spoke Finnish, you know, when, to the age of two, Tavi spoke almost entirely Finnish. And then obviously the world creeps in and you start speaking English. Um, Tavi has always been pretty good at Finnish. Ita has always understood and spoken very little. And the interesting thing is, is Tavi has a, they're at an international, they're not at an international school, they're at a private school, it's a, it's a Steiner school that we got them into. And I, we felt like that was, you know, when they got in, first of all, it's, it's private school, but but the government still pays for it. So we're not on the, we're not on the hook for a bill, but it's smaller, it's smaller classes, a little more uh, flexibility and, and, and uh, the teachers are, it's just a different learning environment than sending a kid into a public 
in the school, which are great, by the way, as, as headlines around the world have, have touted the Finnish education system. But this is even kind of taking it a step further. They have small classes. And my son, Tavi, has, a, has a, uh, a boy who has spent time in Germany, speaks really good English. His parents have been in South Africa. He's half Finnish, and he speaks a lot of Finnish or English with Tavi. And the teacher has told me that you've got to get those guys speaking more Finnish because Ita, I would say, probably has maybe surpassed Tavi in her speaking already in just two months. So it's uh, the kids learn very quickly. And, it, you know, I took Tavi to the dentist today, and he just he rapped with them and, and finished the whole time. And it's just astounding how quickly kids pick up. Yeah, kids are amazing at how quickly, like you say, how quickly they can pick up the languages. Yeah. I have to say my my daughter-in-law's sister married a or is uh, has a partner who who is Finnish and mm-hmm. so they're going to be very happy to hear this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is super exciting. Well, we could probably talk about Finland for hours, but yeah. our listeners are probably interested in what's going or what the the memories of Salt Lake 2002. So yeah. let's let's uh take a look back at those Salt Lake 2002 games and what I want to know, really, uh, first off to, to start is, how did you get involved in Salt Lake? What were you doing before working for the organizing committee? And what was your path to the Salt Lake 2002 games? Well, I was a, <clears throat> I was a national team biathlete, just, uh, skiing and shooting um, for most of the 90s. Uh, I quit after I didn't make the team in 1998. I went back to college at Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, at that time, I was doing... Um, I was basically serving in my time not in school. I was serving as, as an assistant coach to the national team. So I, I worked on things like uh, I was a technique coach. I, I worked on ski technique. I worked on um, re- relationships building with the ski ski brands so that, so that we could probably get our athletes better skis uh, than they were getting. Um, those are a couple of projects. I worked on a, on a, um, a video project for trying to optimize the athletes' techniques with the USOC. And then, uh, and then when I graduated, the the spring that I graduated, the uh, executive director of U.S. Biathlon, Max Cobb, asked me if I would come on. There were my brother was the junior national team coach for the sport, and I was graduating and didn't really have a job lined up. And um, he offered me a fairly meager subsistence to be a, a junior development national junior development coach. So basically, what we did is we identified, I think it was twelve kids nationwide who probably had a pretty good chance of beating some of the kids who are on the junior national team if they just had more exposure and more intensive training with a coach for a few months. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, you know, the intent was to go through that winter, try to qualify some of those kids for the junior world championships and move on with them. Uh, um, but I, I did that job. I think I started right when I graduated, which was in May, had a few camps. Um, and then by August, they ran out of money, uh, which is pretty typical for a small national governing body. And I, I just remember Max called me and said, "Hey, I got, I got, I got good, I got bad news, and I got good news. Which do you want first? And I go, "Well, let's always start with the bad news." He goes, well, we don't have enough money to pay you <laughs> anymore to coach, but um, the good news is uh, they need a a sport coordinator for the Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. Lyle Nelson needs and John Alberg need some help on the venue and. We think you're the perfect guy for it. So even though I'm not hiring you, they, they pretty much, it's a done deal. If you want the job, it's yours. So packed up my Volkswagen Jetta and everything that I owned in it and uh, and made my way to Salt Lake. And that's how, so I started out as, a, as the coordinator. I got, I got, um, I, I think I got 
about a month or two in, I got I got um, a promotion to be a sport manager under Lyle Nelson, and um, that's kind of how it all started. I just that was my um, that was my that was my introduction to the organizing committee. Wow, that's really really fascinating. Two questions for you. Number one. Uh, when was it that you actually joined the organizing committee then? Number two, what was it like transitioning from a, an elite, you know, high performance athlete? So being an athlete to then finding another role in the sport where you're not actually actively competing. Uh, it was great. Uh, I'll start with the first one. Um, I, I, so the first one was timeline, right? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, being an athlete, you know, um, I came in in August of 2000. So would it have been August of 2000. Yeah. So it was like we were going into test event and, and when I got there, there was a lot of work to, that needed to get done. And, and I basically, <clears throat> I buried myself in it. And it was a good thing. I, w- I spoke German because it was, it's a German speaking sport. Uh, I had to do invitation and, and, and anybody who's worked a test event at an Olympics, at least at, up at the, at that time knew that you're, you're everything. You, you know, you're working with transportation, but you're doing the transportation. You're working with housing, but you're doing the housing. So I came in pretty late. Um, the transition out of being an athlete, I, by that time, I had already kind of gone two years out without being an athlete anymore. I was at Middlebury, and I skied on the team, but I wasn't training. I gained, I probably gained 15, 20 pounds, wasn't in good fitness. So, I, you know, and, and felt like certainly didn't make me any fitter. I didn't have any... <laughs> You know, coming in as I did, I had no time to work out. I barely had time to sleep, let alone think about working out. So, um, it was it was a it was a crash course in catching balls. You know, I mean, there's balls flying left and right, and some of, and a lot of it's in German. And it was really a great it was a great experience for a guy who was 30 years old and coming and and highly driven and uh, and had a lot of energy and had a lot of love for the Olympic Games. So it was like. In a lot of ways, it was a dream job. I mean, I, I I thought that I was going to be a coach. I just assumed that I would probably transition out of being an athlete and be a national team coach, and and then I wasn't. I was doing that, and um, it was. I, I look at it now, and and I, you know, I, I also I, I also besides being the sport coordinator, and we can talk about that if you want. So besides being the sport coordinator, I was uh, I was the color commentator for biathlon in the stadium as well. So I I straddled the organizing the sport the sport uh, department and sport production department, which was a cause for some heartburn for, for a few weeks and a few months, but it worked out. Um, so it was, it was it, overall, it launched that, that launched my career into sport broadcasting as well. Well, that's fantastic. I definitely want to dive into that. And you know, we had Peter Graves on, um, Oh, I don't know, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he talked a lot about the broadcasting thing, and I find that totally fascinating. So I def- definitely want to jump into that with you. But mm-hmm. let's talk about the sport coordination first. You, you mentioned you come in, you dive in. It's rather late, and you're juggling a lot of balls. You said <laughs> you have a lot yeah. of balls going on the You're coming into test events. Uh, what were some of the big concerns coming into test event season there in biathlon, and uh, what were some of the ways that you resolved those concerns? I, I honestly think it was um, the, the 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 five fire alarm, so to speak. When I got there, was just communicating. Um, we needed to get um, prompt um, prompt communication to the federations, the national federations, from the 
and the International Federation on our test event. Like, what are the details? And those details, you know, were being worked out, but a lot of them were ready. And, and I basically came in and I just had to create, I mean, I did it on Word. It just blows me away today. I, I designed a logo for the event on Word document that wasn't able to get any fancy software. Probably would have taken just as long to learn the software. So, you know, I'm doing an invitation, a, 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 a world invitation for for the World Cup on Word document <laughs> using images. Um, I worked really closely with Lyle Nelson, who was who was the sport director for us for our venue, and with Max Cobb, who was with, from the um, Biathlon Federation and was the chief of competition. And um, it was it was really a lot of of editing and re- writing copy and editing and then chasing down all those details to make sure that it was accurate information. Uh, I worked a lot with Giannis Vodichar, who was the technical delegate out of Slovenia. He came in for a couple of meetings and. Giannis and I became very, very close because we had a lot to do and and, and we got it done. Um, but that test event, I mean, I I remember the test event just being, it was a war. It was war zone for me. I mean, it was like, I, I don't think I slept for the entire test event. I maybe, sl- I maybe caught three to four hours of sleep total in three days. Um, and I remember it because we had a, because we had a world cup in Lake Placid, where we were sending the athletes after our Salt Lake one, I was actually fly, going there to announce in the stadium in Lake Placid too. I just remember getting, laying down after all the teams had gotten on the flights on the on the charter flights. We got them out of out of Heber, and I went to our. We had a rented apartment in Heber, and and Lyle went back to Salt Lake, and I was in there by myself, laying on a mattress on the floor, and I just zonked out. And two hours later, I got a call from Max Cobb. And it's like two in the morning. You know, I look at him, what's up? He goes, well, everybody's on their way. That's the good news. The bad news here, I'm here with about a ton of luggage on the on the tarmac that didn't make weight. <laughs> so, so I thought I was done. And we spent that whole next day, that whole from 2 a.m. till probably 8 a.m. trying to track down a plane for a price that we could possibly afford. <laughs> to get the, the luggage. And I remember we had Kathy Priestner on the phone. Uh, Lyle was on the phone and we found a plane. I think it was out of Idaho, flew down to Salt Lake, took all the luggage. And, and we had, we had been really diligent with the teams about how much they could or couldn't bring on the charter. And they were just, they, they all just ignored it. And, and it became our problem, which is classic for a venue that's never put on a biathlon world cup. They, you know, they're just going to take advantage of it. And, and so I finally got to go to bed about 10 a.m. the next morning after I thought I was already going to get the first few weeks of sleep. Um, I mean, I, I think about now it felt like it felt like war. You know, I like I didn't I, I had been in the military and been in basic training and I was sleep deprived of that testament. And then it, the, the good news was, I think that that was the hard for me as a sport manager. That was the hardest part of the entire uh, Salt Lake Olympic Organizing Committee experience. I think the, Olymp- the Olympics themselves. You have so much more support, so much more, um, yeah, it's just so much more organized. And there's so many more people doing things that I didn't have to catch as the sport manager. So that was a total trial by fire, by fire for sure. Wow. Yeah. Five alarm fire. No doubt. That's a crazy story. Yeah. I have to ask, um, were there, was there anything specific that you learned from that experience of testing, you know, doing that World Cup test event that helped you refine your planning or approach for the actual Olympic Games? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I got to say, I think everything felt easy after that. Like, you know, I, I think the Olympics, uh, the Olympics seemed really easy to me. Like, like it, I don't know, maybe there's somebody back back who's looking back at this going, yeah, he didn't do anything during the Olympics. What a jerk. <laughs> so so maybe, maybe that's the case. But I, I really felt like the test event was was, was the test for me personally. Just the amount of time I had to get to put the information together, to organize it, to, to, to coordinate with Max, Lyle and Giannis and all the teams, that was just a, the sheer magnitude of that work was, was I've never had anything. I mean, I would say the next hardest thing I've done was my, my college thesis. And that doesn't even compare. Um, it was a lot of work. And, and I think what it did for me is it, it, it taught me how to, I'm not a very detail oriented, at least up to that point, I really wasn't, I wasn't considered a detail oriented person. My, the habits on my team might, might beg to differ now or on the, my team since. I think it made me really diligent about following up details, especially written details and making sure because every detail you had screwed up was going to come back to you tenfold with questions from people in another language who are confused. So um, I realized that you have to be impeccable with the information you're sending out, especially for the Olympic Games, just because of the gravity of it. But the great thing was the scope just the scope just narrowed down and I went right into my lane. And, and you know, I don't think we, I can't think, I mean, the hardest thing we had going into the Olympic Games for me personally was working with Secret Service on how we were going to handle it. That was frustrating um, beyond belief, um, but we got it done. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, right? I mean, the, why was the Secret Service involved? They were involved because 9-11 happened. Right, right, right. So it, tell us about that impact. Um, yeah, it happened between, I, I, I guess it was September. Yeah, so it, it would have happened between the test event and the Olympics. We didn't have any of that problem with the test event. So, so the, the real issue was, there were two, two issues, and, and one of them was accreditation, and one of them was, was safety. Um, so the... And I don't think of any, I, I could be wrong. You might want to check with John Alberg on this, but I, I think the IOC and FIS and IBU all learned a really big lesson on venue structure, venue design in Salt Lake, that um, it was a state of the art as far as meshing the two, the, the three sports, Nordic combined cross country skiing and biathlon, but Nordic combined and cross country both fall under FIS. Biathlon is a different international federation. But that venue was so intimate in, in its in its flow of 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 people of back of house and front of house um that it created a huge while it was a genius design um i don't want to i don't want to take any way from anything away from the design because the design worked it just created all kinds of um accreditation problems and snafus to work within the um the, the ioc's uh, uh accreditation system and uh, you know, we probably, quite honestly, needed another eight to nine differentiators than we were able to, to put together based on the IOC rules. So that, along with the Secret Service, those two those two things were really working at odds with each other. And it was really frustrating because the IF couldn't do much about it. They weren't getting any traction with the IOC. Um uh, and, and, and then the, and then, and then the secret service came in and they're, you know, I remember the first meeting I said, wait, 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 whoa, wait a minute. These guys are going to come into a right into a venue, Olympic venue with firearms. With, they use weapons, <laughs> weapons on their backs, the nomenclature of, of, of the secret service. They're going to come out with weapons that are in bags that we can't see what kind of weapon it is. You see the problem. I mean, what if it's a machine gun? What if it's somebody posing and they got a accreditation? 
So, you know, I would say that, you know, I, all that time I spent preparing with the IF side of things for, the, for, the, for running the logistics of the test event, then switched almost entirely to how do we operate and, and move people safely and securely in places they're supposed to be with the accreditations. It was, a, it was highly limited with, you know, we had, we had fewer differentiators than, than, we, than the number more we needed to actually function the way the, the IF normally does. So that, you know, I don't know where that stands today because I haven't worked on the game since, but it was really, it was, it was a challenge. That was a big challenge. And in the end, what we did is um, we decided, uh, you know, we made the, as an organizing committee, we gave every biathlete a rifle cover, a, a sewn rifle cover with a Salt Lake logo on it. And so they asked me, like, what's going to get these athletes to use these rifle covers? And I go, well, it can't be a cheap piece of junk because they're not going to use it. They're going to go right back to their on-shoots or, or, or other manufacturer of rifle cover because it just works better. So we got to make a good one. So we, I had to find a, I had to find a seamstress that might build these things for us in, in the Salt Lake area or in, in, the, in the Utah area uh, and design it and then come up with a, with a way that it was going to be cool enough. And in the end, it was really cool. Like I saw those Salt Lake rifle covers at World Cups for five, six years beyond the games because, you know, it's kind of cool to have the Olympic things, you know, but, but it, it, was, it, was a, it was a project in and of itself. And what, the solution we came up with is you would be able to tell a biathlon rifle from any other rifle just by where they ha- have the pistol grip and where the hand, where the bolt action is. So we created these really cool rifle covers and they had a plastic see-through uh, section about a foot long, right where you'd see the, the, the rear sights and the, and the, and the chamber and the and pistol grip. And that was what they used from a secure security standpoint to identify an athlete who's carrying a biathlon rifle and not something more, more concerning. Wow. <laughs> that is mind boggling. Yes. Um, we have an accreditation issue. What's the solution? <laughs> Uh, rifle covers. That's yeah. The- yeah. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was really worked. It worked. Uh, um, you know, I don't remember if I came up with that or Max came up with it, but when we, when we came up with like, well, we, so he, I'll back up a second. So I don't know if you've ever dealt with secret service, but um, this is what it would go like. And it went this way for about six months. You'd come in and there'd be three, four agents who are representing the secret service. And those of us from Salt Lake, whoever was in the thing, we'd sit there and we'd present our, our solution, our, our proposed solution. They'd sit there and they'd nod their head. All right, we'll get back to you. And they'd leave. And the next day or two, we'd hear back from them. Not going to work. <laughs> and that was it. It was like, we could tweak this. It was none of that. It was like, we'll work with you on this. It was just like, not going to work. So it's like, when we finally got it to work, we we're like, you know, we, we danced a jiggy that the rifle, <laughs> the rifle cover was the solution. That's pretty cool. You mentioned that the course was innovative. Uh, the venue was innovative. What was it about the venue that made it so interesting? It was the fact that they were so close. They were so close. Like if you look at Olympic venues since Salt Lake, so at Soldier Hollow, which was was a, a breathtaking um, course in and of itself, it was a very unique um, place. Being the fact that there wasn't a lot of trees, it was kind of on a hillside in in the arid. Uh, countryside of of Utah, uh, so you know when you drive in, you you can see the whole venue. So so that that in and of itself for a 
on-venue experience of watching the Olympic Games in person with a ticket in the stands or on the court. It, uh, you know, I don't know that the Olympics has ever had a better venue from that standpoint. The, the, but what what I think, you know, you'd have to talk to John Alberg. He would know a lot more about it because I came in after all that was built. But basically, there's a cross-country stadium on one side, biathlon range and stadium on the other side, and there was basically a teepee of bleachers between the two, one facing the cross-country side, the other side cascading down towards the biathlon side. Um, and really what what was the issue from back of house was um, the fact that you on a competition day, you might have two also, also have two training sessions. And when you have across three sports, North Combined might have a training session, men's and women's cross country, or just men's cross country might have a training session before the biathlon rate, the women cross countries might have a session after the biathlon competition. And then Nordic combined might be after that. So what you have is three different sports working with one venue with very narrow, very narrow pathways in and out of the, the, the functioning um, pieces of the venue. I actually have this, the, the soldier hollow venue framed the working drawings framed in, in my office in, in Duluth. Um, and, and, uh, there, there was basically uh, there was a lounge building that's still there, kind of a log structure um, that wasn't really part of. It was just basically an athlete lounge, and from there there was one path down into the venue. And if if an event is going on and somebody's trying to get ready for practice, there are there are essentially three different sport accreditations being used on one pathway during an event, during an actual event, and and that just created all kinds of heartburn for um for turning over the venue from and flipping it from a competition a training session to a competition back to a training session and, and it, it required four of those called they're called edits uh event daily integrated timelines and that was that was uh that, those were those that taught me a lot of about detail as well as edits um because we you know we had to figure out how we were going to set training times and race times so that we limited that that friction between cross country and biathlon and order to combine um, the best we could, and it was it was I, I can see why they don't want to build venues like that anymore because it, operationally it's just really problematic. Well, I'll be curious to see what happens if Salt Lake decides to go for the games again. Well, I mean they're they're interested in it, and yeah. uh, I'm wondering I'm wondering what changes they may they might make to that particular venue. One other question I have for you about the the venue is. The weather, you can get a lot of snow or Utah is prone to extended periods of drought. Mm. You can also have unseasonably warm temperatures in the yeah. middle of the winter months. Uh, any particular weather concerns, either during the test events or during the actual games? We had surprisingly really great weather and we had surprisingly really good natural snowfall. I think one of the things we worried about in operational meetings is the way the venue would look if we got no snow. Because then you've basically got brown on white on brown, and it just doesn't look like the Winter Olympics. Um, the, the number one thing that we dealt with, um, and was probably the most, yeah, the most contentious piece was probably there were two things. There were uh, a couple of spectator areas, how we were going to dress those up. But the number one thing was the back, the backdrop of the shooting range. There's a huge mound behind the shooting behind the above the targets that faced essentially faced south. <laughs> so even if you got snow, um, it was prone to melt and then have mud underneath it. And so basically what we looked for is we try to find, you know, if you just wrapped it in white plastic, 
then the snow would accumulate, get heavy, and slide down the plastic, and you have a problem there, taking everything out with it. As it turned out, our TD knew of a company in Slovenia that created a fabric, that, a white fabric, that actually held snow. I'm not sure what the, what the invention of that fabric was for. It might have been for ski jumping. I'm not sure. But um, we bought that stuff. We bought that fabric, and, and, we, and we dressed that, that back that backdrop of the shooting range in that white fabric. And when it snowed, it didn't slide. It actually stuck to the fabric and we did have snow, but it was white. And then, and then what was really great is we, I don't remember what the price tag was. It wasn't a lot, but you know, we dressed that up with a huge set of turquoise Olympic rings. And if you look, you didn't get a lot of photographs from biathlon, just the way the, the, the venue was set up. It was hard to get a good shot of those rings in a biathlon setting, but on the first climb of the cross country course, where the skiers came out of the cross-country venue and crested the hill, in the background were those huge Olympic rings on the back of the biathlon range. We saw a lot of great shots with that as a backdrop. It was really cool. It ended up being a, you know, that was a great example of being creative and turning something that was going to be an eyesore into probably something that really made the venue feel the most Olympic of anything there. That is so cool. That is so cool. I want to come to the competition time. You mentioned that you were a a color commentator Mm -hmm. uh, during the games. Um, how did you balance the roles between being the sport manager and the color commentator, or were you just doing the color commentating full time and you weren't doing the sport management thing? I mean, how did that all work? Yeah, it was, um, well, well, first of all, we pulled it off during the test event, which was even crazier because I had a lot more work to do during the test event, but it it is the Olympics. So, you know, that we went around and around on it. And I got to say, like, I got to hand it to Peter Graves and Christy Nicolay, they were really, they really went to bat for me because I know there were a couple of people who had some heartburn about it, that they felt like, how can, how can the sport manager be gone while the test event, is, well, while the Olympic event is going on? And the point was, is that if, if I had done my job as a sport manager, there's nothing for me to do when the race is going on. The chief of course is in charge, the chief of rate, chief of competition is in charge. Um, and, and that's really what happened. I mean, I, you know, we got past it. I think, you know, I wasn't I wasn't as well known for my commentary back then as I am now. I was kind of a new 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 a new person to it. I'm relatively I've been doing it for about four years in small venues, um, but I, I was excitable. You know, I, I I think that that also concerned a few people. I mean, nobody said it to my face, but I caught wind of it. There was some concern that I was a I was a little too wild for the Olympics, um, uh, but. It's, it worked out. <laughs> and I, I've gotten a lot of work since then. So I think it's, something worked. Um, so, I, I, you know, I got, I got to say it, but, you know, Peter going to bat for me, John Albert going to bat for me to do it, Max Cobb going to bat, and, and Christy Nicolay ultimately letting me do the job. Um, you know, it led to, to me doing it as, as really my profession now. I mean, I'm a coach, but I also do this on the side for NBC, and I have been for, for quite, a, quite a number of years. And, um, you know, it all started there. I, I, I got uh, the first TV work I ever did was after the Olympics in 2003. The Kent Gordis is a, was a, uh, is, is a good friend of mine. He's, I just met him at that time and he is a independent producer out of Brooklyn, New York. And he heard me in the background as a PA announcer, as a color PA announcer. And he thought the sport of biathlon should be on TV and with the U S biathlon association and he, he, him independently, they basically put it on the Olympic, uh, the, the outdoor life network the next year. And that's where my entire broadcasting uh, career started. Um, and, and it was because I got that opportunity in Salt Lake city to do the PA announcing. So it's, uh, 
it's it's a pretty it's a pretty um, memorable spot for me personally to be have been a commentator there. It, I remember standing on the 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 um, the CMB, the Competition Management Building. On on there's a terrace out there before the first biathlon competition, and we were doing our on camera welcome to the crowd, and and it was electric for me. I mean, it was just like I get goosebumps thinking about it right now. Um, Shell Eric Christensen and I were doing it, and uh, Shell and I had gone had had some working thing, working things out in the week prior to, but, but we came in with mutual respect and we called the, the first race with the men's 20 kilometer. And it was a gripper. It's usually the, the most boring event in biathlon. And it went down to Oleander Bjorndalen was chasing his teammate um, all the way through the races. Frode Andresen was leading, surprised leading the 20 K because he's not a very good shooter. It's a shooter's race. And Bjorndalen uh, took it down to the final shooting stage and won at the final shooting stage. And, it was a it was a total total barn burner of a twenty k for for what normally is a boring race and uh, and that kicked off a four medal four gold medal run for Olena Briandalen that is historic to the state nobody's ever done that. Well, I want to touch on something that you just said there, which was this twenty k is normally a fairly boring race, so. If you're a PA announcer or a commentator, what do you do to keep the crowd engaged? I mean, I guess like we can ask Christy Nicolay as well, but as a, you know, as a, as a member of this team that is delivering the sport presentation Mm -hmm. for the event, uh, if it's one of these longer quote unquote, more boring events, what do you do to keep everybody in the fans in the stadium all engaged and motivated and excited? Well, the, the good thing was, is, is we didn't have to pull out any bells and whistles for that one, which, because um, the way the Olympic starting orders were, were laid out, there were, there were favorites in all four starting groups. So you almost had, and that's, what's great about biathlon, even in the individual start, which is a little bit harder to follow. It's a little bit more boring, but if you have good splits and you have good information on the video board, you can set up the story really, really well. And, and, and my recollection of that event was, you know, we were ready to go to sport production, to go to the field and do, and, and we did. We, we threw to Taylor Robbins in, in the stands. We did all the fun stuff, but we never lost sight of the story of that competition. And it was, it was a really compelling race from everything I remember of it. And it wasn't boring at all because there were these dramatic moments where, um, you know, a new leader, a new potential leader would come in and, and if they shot clean, they would lead. And it seemed like there was just this constant rotation of characters at different levels, different points in the race. And the, and the race was over and we, we took our heads and said, wow, that was, that was an amazing 20K, you know? And, and that, that was kind of how the, the entire Olympic um, two weeks felt at Soldier Hollow. Like that, that week, that race, that 20-kilometer biathlon race, it came on the heels of the 30-kilometer cross-country race, the first men's cross-country race where Johan Muleg blew everybody out of the water. Everybody suspected he was doping. It turned out he was. And that, that men's 20 kilometer turned a corner for me in spirit because I was feeling very down about the Olympic movement after the Mulek. You know, I'm working behind the scenes. I know what people are thinking, whereas fans think, wow, that Mulek was amazing. You know, I was, I was feeling, I was kind of licking the Olympic wound, my Olympic wounds after that one. And that, that 20 K being as good as it, as it was um, really kind of, turned everything for me very early in the games. And, it, and the games felt kind of, um, they felt 
kind of magical from that point on. And the Bjorn Dahlen story just kept growing and growing and growing. And it's still probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, stories of the Salt Lake Olympics is his gold medal. So that was kind of that was kind of where it, it really took off for, for me. So so we didn't have to. That's the, 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 the long answer, the short answer to your to your question is that we didn't really have to engage in any bells or whistles or tricks to keep the to keep the 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 audience engaged because it was a really good race. Uh, what impacts, if any, did hosting the games here in the U.S. in Salt Lake City have on the sport of biathlon moving forward? Um, it was really good. It was it was timely. I I, I would say. I, I mean, I I think if you look at where biathlon's greatest moments for the U.S. biathlon program came, it was the it was the ten years, twelve twelve to fourteen years after, like right up to. Well, to now even, I mean, we have, we weren't, we weren't, we didn't have medal contenders ever in, we had one in 1988 and Josh Thompson and, um, and he did, he didn't win a medal in 88. We still haven't won, the sport still hasn't won a medal at the Olympic games for the United States. Um, but we had a world champion in 2017 and he was a young athlete at the time. He didn't make that 2002 team, but he was a, you know, he was involved with the junior team at that time. So it was Tim Burke who actually led the world cup in 2010 going, you know, just before the break for the Olympics, he was the best, he was the top biathlete in the world wearing the yellow bib as the world cup leader. So, you know, there were some, there were some immediate impacts that having the Salt Lake games unquestionably had on the sport, on its popularity, on drawing talent in and keeping talented kids. I know Lowell and Tim, they stayed in the sport for a long time Lowell won his world championship. I think he was 35 when he won his world championship title. The first and only American to ever do that. To, to stick with a sport that is so in the background of American sport culture for that long, uh, for a guy like Lowell, I think that that Salt Lake impact helped build that uh, that staying power for that, that generation of athletes. And, and we still have we still have a medal potential. We still, Susan Dunkley won a silver medal at the world championships last year. Um, you know, the, the, the most successful period of biathlon definitely came out of Salt Lake. I don't think anybody can argue otherwise. Um, my last question on this tangent is where does it go from here? You're holed up in Finland mm -hmm. with uh, COVID and everything. How's that impacting the sport? And, uh, you know, what is the, what does it look like for you in the, in the upcoming uh, season? And uh, where do you think the, the long-term the long-term uh, trajectory for the sport of biathlon is headed. You know, um, it, it doesn't seem to lose its popularity in Europe. It's a big sport over here. It, it, athletes do well that do well in sport, just financially, fiscally. Um, I think the COVID, you know, the season came to an abrupt end last year and I was in Connecticut doing the work with NBC. We were covering the entire season. Um, it looks like we're going to cover it again. I'll get into that later, but I, I think to, to answer the first question about where is this going, it's a, it's anybody's guess. Um, I think the one thing that that both cross country skiing and biathlon have in their favor is they have they both have good they both have at least very strong European base fan bases. Um, biathlon does very well on TV. It does well um, commercially, uh, uh, and I think that um, that it, it's probably as long as we can. We all need some kind of fix to, to get to move forward with COVID. It's not just sport. It, it, it's universal. But the same things that everybody needs, the sport needs as well. The, the, the atmosphere in a, in a stadium, in a biathlon or cross-country World Cup stadium, 
during the World Cups or World Championships. It, it, it's what makes it special. It's what makes it exciting. And to have the crowds quiet, you know, World Championships happened in Italy. It was stark contrast for us. They had huge crowds in Northern Italy before it broke out in Northern Italy. The COVID, you know, it was like weeks before it broke out. And then they shut the, the, the venues down in, in the Czech Republic two weeks, a week and a half later, and there's nobody there. It's dead quiet. And you're used to this raucous scene. So there's no doubt that the the um, the atmosphere and the, the the entire feel of the thing has changed. It's turned a corner. Um, we're going to have to try to find a way to make that compelling still to watch as broadcasters. I think that that's that's part of the onus is on us there. Um, but I, I think that it, it's it's going to go the way of everything else. The, the thing they have going for it, it, it is it's an outdoor sport. It is probably doable to a relatively safe um, extent outdoors. Um, you can hold more individual. They, they have a lot of individual start, 30-second start, one person every 30-second start events. Um, and you can do more of those if you start having um, evidence that you're having, having sport uh, contact causing outbreaks. I don't think we're going to have that based on what we're seeing so far. I mean, I, I watch Formula One. that. They're doing a great job. The Tour de France went off without a hitch. I think that if those events can do, I mean, not without a hitch, there were some positive tests, but the athletes by and large came out healthy and safe. So I think that, uh, I think even though everybody is moving forward and, and very careful and has a lot of trepidation with the start of the World Cup season coming in Finland, both biathlon and cross country will be two weeks in Finland uh, starting out. So um, they're coming to Finland to start the season. Uh, Finland is in a really good good place um, internationally as far as uh, the number of cases we're seeing. So it's a good place to start the World Cup. Get the athletes in, make sure that they don't spread it, and they're here for a few weeks. So I, I think we're going to get. I think we're going to the, the, the basic answer is I think we're going to get a season. There aren't going to be fans uh, or a lot of them. If there are, uh, there might be some places where there'll be allowed to be some fans, but not many. Um, and I think that we're going to get through the season and, and see what happens on the COVID front at large um, before we know what the long-term future is. I, I think the sport, I, but I do think both sports will survive this initial COVID, um, this initial COVID uh, period. Well, I certainly hope so. And for the sake of the athletes, as well as all of those who are involved in in organizing or governing uh, these these competitions and these uh, seasons, I, I I really hope that uh, that it, it turns out well uh, for you and uh, all of your colleagues that are involved in the sport. And uh, uh, we definitely need some wins in these yeah. events, you know. So sure. the, the more of these events uh, that we can pull off successfully in this crazy pandemic. Uh, then I think the more confidence we can build in the general population that these can be, and in the athletes and the organizations, that uh, that they can be held safely and and they can be successful. So uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, Chad. I have to say, I really really enjoyed it. Um, before we get to our final segment, any other particular Salt Lake 2002 stories that you want to share? Yeah, I, I think you know it's like brain traces. You have to go and scrape them off. You know, I, I think about like you know the, the tarmac one. I, I hadn't planned on telling that one, but it came to me. And uh, and even and the, the Secret Service one, totally, I hadn't planned to talk about it. I, I mean, I think I think there's nothing like the Olympics, right? I mean. Uh, you know, I, I had spent a decade, over a decade of my life trying to get to the Olympics as an athlete, and I, and I as luck would have it, I didn't, I didn't ever go. I, um, 
So, you know, my, my, but I ha I've had a long um, love affair with the Olympic games. I think there are, it's, it's a, it's not a perfect, um, it's not a perfect entity. There, there are certainly problems with in the, the Olympic movement that, that uh, certainly still continue to need to be dealt with and cheating and, and corruption. And, and those things all make me kind of sad, but when you boil it all down to, what is the essence of the Olympic Games? I don't think it gets any better than stepping off the bus at Soldier Hollow at the at the the Western experience during the Olympic Games before the events happened with smoke and smoke coming up from the from the from the teepees and from the from the uh, there was a, there was a uh, there were a couple of little like stores and pioneer houses and stuff and people acting out how they lived back then. I, I just think. The stories that were told at that venue were really special. Um, I think the people that worked there were really special. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was, it, it, it changed the trajectory of my life um, in a very positive way. And, and, and that trajectory is still being felt today, um, announcing from my bedroom in Finland this winter, uh, cross country and biathlon World Cup. So it's, uh, it's a, it is a profound, it was a profound time in my life and, and I, I, I'm forever thankful. Wow. Well, I am very grateful for you to come on and share all of your stories with us, but we're not quite done with you yet. So let's get to our final segment. We've got three questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first question is a music question. So Chad, as you were working there in the Salt Lake Games, is there a particular song or a musical artist that, you know, whenever you hear him today, it just immediately takes your mind right back to Salt Lake 2002. Totally. I'm a music guy. So music is in my life. <clears throat> David Gray Babylon is like, that takes me right to how Salt Lake felt. Because ironic, I, I, I love David Gray, but I hated the song Babylon. <laughs> it was my, my least favorite song because it was his mega hit. Um, but every time I hear Babylon, I hear the, that opening kind of trill of, of uh, guitar as, as Babylon comes on the radio to this day, it, it, it takes me right back to Salt Lake City. I went to see David Gray play at Salt Air. It was Salt Air, was that the name of it? Or, or, or Lake Air? Yeah, yeah, the venue that was out by the Great Salt Lake. Right. Yeah, I went to see David Gray out there, and and um, yeah, it was. Uh, so that that that's that's for sure. And the, the other song that that beautiful day by U two, like that just that that took because we would open with that song all the time when it was sunny out at Soldier Hollow. So those two songs really, they just bring back Bab Babylon. Probably brings me back to what it felt like working for Slock, the the feeling of being in. Salt Lake City, and then out, out of the venue, and Beautiful Day reminds me of Soldier Hollow itself. All right, Babylon and <laughs> Beautiful Day, those are great songs. Maybe a bit overplayed, like you say, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no worries on that. We've got a playlist on Spotify that has all the songs that everybody has nominated. Cool. And listeners can go and check out the Spotify <clears throat> playlist. It's called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective, same name as this podcast. Cool. We've talked about music. Next question for you is food question. Is there a restaurant that you like to frequent there in Salt Lake or up there in Heber Midway area that, uh, you know, you really, really just enjoyed going there all the time? Yeah, I thought about this after you sent me the uh, the email about this podcast. And <clears throat> I think the place was called Kenji's. It was behind the, so <clears throat> behind the Wells Fargo building where the offices were, there was kind of a park. And there was this Japanese place, kind of fast food Japanese place, and the, the sushi wasn't great. You know, I think they had some sushi, but they had a they had a teriyaki chicken bowl, and it was like five bucks. And to this day, I have measured all teriyaki chicken bowls against Kenji's teriyaki chicken bowl because it was kind of this 
this gooey teriyaki that was really flavorful and rich. And the rice was usually really very good at Kenji's as well. So you get this teriyaki chicken bowl. You get a little, like kind of a little Japanese salad with a really great dressing. I just remember Kenji's, it wasn't, it wasn't fancy. It was, it was like Japanese fast food, but that teriyaki chicken bowl, if anybody on this podcast knows Kenji or knows of Kenji's and knew how that sauce was made or where they got it, I would pay for that because I have not found a teriyaki chicken bowl as good as Kenji's. And I loved it. The other place I liked was the Globe across the street. I think both places have long since closed. The Globe had really cool sandwiches, had a cool atmosphere and a cool vibe. And then I used to, I used to also go with Jackie, who you said was, or not, Jackie was one of them. There was a kind of a squad of us young 30 somethings who would always go to the Ishiban uh, sushi place in the evening. Those, that brings back, I remember Abby Holt was there and, and, uh, Sean Mackey was in that group and, and we'd go there and have sushi and, and kind of talk into the night. And that was kind of like a way that when we were all stressed and tired out, we could just kind of unwind and eat sushi. So those, those three are the ones that stick out for me. Well, now the challenge has been thrown down. We have to find the Kenji yeah. teriyaki sauce. Totally. So if anybody has any intel on where we can find the Kenji teriyaki sauce, uh, please let us know. We do have a map for the restaurants that are still around. And we have a list of the restaurants that are no longer there, but we do have a map for the restaurants that still exist on the website uh, for our podcast with little pins for all the cool. restaurants that everybody's nominated. So thank you very much for the food memory. And you've already mentioned some really spine tingling moments uh, from kind of commentating there at the biathlon and other things that you did there. Is there one particular moment there is a real standout uh, goosebump moment for you? Uh, yeah, there are two basically because because everything was so new um that first biathlon race that we talked about um i got to call the flower ceremony um so basically i got to announce the olympic champion of that event for the first time and that first that first uh men's biathlon 20k um uh, doing the flower ceremony um it gives me goosebumps i think about it now and i have i got them right now just standing in the booth checking my script, double-checking my script, changing the way I spoke because I wasn't in commentary mode. I kind of turned into the PA announcer uh, role and to, and to call that flower ceremony. That was, a, that was a huge honor for me personally to be able to call that, to be that first voice that that Olympic champion heard their name being said as the Olympic champion. Um, but but the, the moment for me was when um, Norway took the gold in the men's relay and in the final event of biathlon and Oleander Bjørndalen got his fourth gold medal. That was, that to me was like, I, we, we knew we may never see that again. And we haven't, um, nobody has dominated an Olympic games, especially in a top security sport like biathlon where shooting is such a big factor. Um, there have been, uh, there is an athlete who just retired last year, Martin Fercad, who has since probably given good cause to, 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 com to be compared as the best biathlete in the world to Oleander Bjørndalen. But one thing Fercad will never have, that probably makes Oleander stand out just a little more was that Salt Lake Olympics performance with the four gold medals. So that I, I just remember them coming across the line and um, feeling uh, uh, like this is history. Like we'll never, we will probably never see this again. Not at least in my lifetime. That 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 really sunk with me. Um, and that was near the end of the games. You're already pretty tired and and have had your electric moments and you're winding down the Olympic games. But that was really cool. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, a great hour for me. So thank you so much for sharing so many wonderful stories with us today, Chad. I really, really appreciate you coming, taking the time all the way from Finland <laughs> to join us. 
If listeners want to connect with you, they want to learn more about the work that you're doing in biathlon, or they want to just connect with you about the Solid 2002 games, what's the best way for them to contact you, social media or otherwise? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't even know my Twitter. I'm so bad. I don't even know my Twitter handle. Um, uh, my, I'm on Facebook. You can friend me on Facebook if you work in Salt Lake. Um, I just send a message saying I worked in Salt Lake and want to connect with you. That's fine. I, that's probably the best way to do it. I mean, it's kind of old school nowadays. Facebook is actually for... I'm starting to figure out through my kids and through my athletes that that I'm an old codger using Facebook, but um, but I still use it regularly. So maybe Facebook's probably Facebook Messenger is probably the best way. To do that. All right, fantastic, Chad. Thank you so much, listeners. Please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon. Chad, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I had a fun time. <laughs>